Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Paris. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Paris guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Paris answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Eiffel Tower, how to use the metro, where to find an absolutely beautiful brasserie right now in any neighborhood. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Welcome to Circa. In the Start Here episode, we will be listing a lot of places to go in the City of Lights. We'll take you on a tour of all the things that make Paris so seductive. A romantic atmosphere, gorgeous architecture, unparalleled art, epic royalty, and even more brazen rebellions, sumptuous jazz, and what the French will certainly tell you is the best food in the world. We're going to cover a lot, but don't worry about taking notes. We've got you. There will be notes, maps, and links in the Circa app. Plus, we have so many more stories to tell you about this city. Maybe you'll want to take a deep dive into the food scene, or Paris fashion, or the velvety world of jazz. Subscribe to Circa and unlock the City of Lights. Now, take a seat on the terrace, order a café crème, and allez hop! Let's go to Paris. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. the city of lights, gay Paris, will always have Paris, the most romantic city in the world. Paris is always a good idea, where good Americans go to die. April in Paris, Emily in Paris, Amélie, the cute rat from Ratatouille, Midnight in Paris, the Moulin Rouge, the Eiffel Tower, Macarons, the Ritz, the Louvre, baguettes, accordions. Okay, breathe. Now that those word associations are out of the way, very few places are as emotionally charged as the French capital. In fact, I would go as far as to say there is no other city that ignites so much passion from people across the world, whether they've been here in person or only in their imagination. I'm Serene Ricard Millet. I've lived all over this swirling mess of a city. I've worked in every neighborhood, danced in every club, and eaten every single French pastry imaginable. These episodes on Paris were written by my colleague Hannah Meltzer. 
Hannah is an adopted Parisian and a journalist who writes about Paris for a living, and we're delighted to be your guides while you get to know everything you could possibly need about the City of Lights. When Notre-Dame Cathedral, the French capital's oldest icon, burst into flames on the 15th of April 2019, newspapers globally ran it as their first front page. Wealthy philanthropists donated their millions to repairing the mighty medieval church, the pledges filling the president's inbox before the flames were even extinguished. So what is it that makes this relatively small city in Central Europe feel relevant and enchanting to so many people? To find out, let's start at the beginning, which is conveniently enough, right in front of Notre-Dame Cathedral. You stand on the plaza, gaping up at the church's three central portals. Above you, spring is announcing itself with a cloudless, sapphire-blue sky. The narrow slick of the Seine River to your right reminds you you're on an island. Across the water, Urbane locals and fashion-conscious tourists sip coffee at the Shakespeare and Company Café, maybe flicking around a classic novel they've just bought from the legendary bookshop next door. On the paving stones in front of the cathedral, you will find a circle carved out in the stone that represents point zero, the point from which all of France's road signs are measured, and the spot where the glittering metropolis we know today originated. Take a look, it actually says point zero in English. Paris started life right here on Ile de la Cité. This was the home of a Gallic tribe named the Parisi, hence the city's name, before Julius Caesar rolled through in about 50 BC and began building as the Romans liked to do. The city of Paris spirals out from the center in an escargot shape to match the garlic-smothered French delicacy. Try them, they're delicious. There are 20 numbered districts or arrondissements, each with their own personality and flavor. Each of the 20 arrondissements has its own mayor, own town hall, and its own unique vibe. Within these are nestled quartiers, kind of mini districts or villages. Each part of the city has something very special to offer, from the glitz of the Grand First in the city centre to the bohemian charms of the 11th and the 20th in the arty east of town. We're here to make sure you see the best of them, from the famous and the clichéd to the off-the-beaten-path gems you never knew you needed a tip-off about. Until now. From the plaza, or parvis, in front of Notre-Dame, you should marvel for a moment at the beauty of the rose window that sits between the two majestic bell towers. This huge stained glass rosette dates back to the year 1250. While it has had work done to it through the years, most of the glass panels are original. Along the front of the church, there is a whole village of characters, biblical kings, patron saints, and Gothic gargoyles designed to gurgle out the rainwater. The construction of this Gothic stunner began a long time ago, like a really long time ago in 1163. And the church has seen it all. During the French Revolution, dissidents even stole the bells and melted them down. 
Then came the grand renovation, prompted by the success of Victor Hugo's novel Notre Dame de Paris, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame for all the Disney fans among us. It was also on this very plaza, in front of the church, that allies joined with the free French forces to liberate Paris from four years of occupation. All of that, just in this one plaza, with a simple measurement stone set into it. These wonderful details are all over Paris if you know where to look. Layers of history and exquisite French artistry. But don't expect people to fall all over themselves to point it out to you. This is Paris after all. Where are you and how do you get around? Luckily, Paris is pretty logical. The Seine River flows through the city and cuts it into two distinct sections. The Rive Gauche, left bank, for all that is south of the river, and the Rive Droite, right bank, for all that is north. If you face the direction the river is flowing, to your left is south and to your right is north. The river is pretty important. In fact, the symbol of Paris is not the Eiffel Tower, but a sailing ship. And once you know this, you'll start to see it everywhere. On the Hotel de Ville or Town Hall, right across the river from Notre Dame, on lamppost and the bridges across the Seine. Paris's city motto is Fluctuat Neg Mergitur in Latin, which translates as it is tossed by the waves but does not sink. And it is true that the sturdy and poetic ship that is Paris has endured a lot. And at the same time, it's a city that is unwavering on the key joys in life. Beauty and pleasure. Naturellement. The city first grew out from the island where Notre Dame stands, Ile de la Cité. Paris, or Lutetia, as the Romans liked to call it, expanded over to the left bank, creating the area known today as the Latin Quarter. This neighborhood takes its name from the historical language of instruction at the Sorbonne, the legendary 800-year-old university located here. Explore some of its finest buildings along Boulevard Saint-Michel and Place de la Sorbonne. Nearby is the Jardin du Luxembourg, one of the city's most typical and charming parks, with its bandstand, sculptures, an elegant parterre, and the Panthéon, a stunning neoclassical church turned mausoleum for French heroes. Across the river, over to the right bank, stretching out across the third and the fourth arrondissement, you will find a neighborhood known as the Marais, or the Swamp. This was once a swampy old marshland until Henry IV, the king who turned Catholic for the throne, arrived here at the end of the 1500s. The first Bourbon king leveled the land and built a grand public square, Place des Vosges, still one of the city's prettiest sites. On a warm day, do it like the locals and have a picnic on the elegant lawns here, some of the few in the city you're actually allowed to sit on. If you really want to experience the soul of the quartier, get your food from Florence Cannes, one of the traditional Jewish delis on Rue des Rosiers. This is the heart of the Pletzel, where Eastern European Jews arrived in the 19th and 20th centuries, fleeing persecution. 
Take the pastrami sandwich and the strudel and admire the charming mosaic. In the 80s and the 90s, this artistic area became the LGBTQ hub of the city and you will find plenty of gay bars along Rue Sainte-Croix de la Bretonnerie. On this road, you can pick up some exquisite macarons to round off your picnic from innovative pâtissier Pierre Hermé. Try the signature Mogador, a melt-in-the-mouth passion fruit and chocolate macaron. Hermé, by the way, was once named the best pastry chef in the world. His orange boxed macarons are famous way beyond the borders of France. For a world capital, Paris isn't so big. The entire city is about the same size as Manhattan. But despite this, Parisians tend to be loyal to their own quartier or neighborhood, favoring their own local haunts and a walking distance journey. Paris can indeed feel like a series of small villages tucked inside a larger city like Russian dolls. Each Parisian has their habitude or regular spots in their pocket of the capital, their corner bar, their preferred boulangerie, cheesemonger, butcher, and of course, wine cellar or caviste, as they are known in French. It's quite delightful to watch what the French call vie de quartier, meaning neighborhood life in action. Order a drink on the front row at a café terrasse and watch the Parisians do what they do. Try Rue des Martyrs, the long sloping road that starts in the 9th arrondissement and climbs up to Montmartre in the 18th arrondissement, or Rue Claire, a quaint pedestrianized road neighboring the Eiffel Tower. As you pay your bill, it's a great time to ask your waiter if they have any nearby recommendations for cheese shops, the fromagerie, or markets, the marché. But you, the traveler, shouldn't only stick to one neighborhood. To explore, as Parisians do, take the metro. The city's metro system opened in 1900, inaugurated with beautiful Art Nouveau entrances, like the one at the Cité Métro or Abbesse, aka the backdrop of the movie Amélie. This is still the fastest and most efficient way to get around. The metro's 14 lines connect across all the major axes of the city. The experience aboard can vary a lot, from the new and clean Lines 1 and 14 to the old, cramp and slightly sketchy Line 13. This is probably a good moment to go through the basics of safety. The French capital is a generally safe place, but, as in most big cities, it's important to adopt a few common-sense behaviours. Make pickpocketing impossible by keeping your valuables zipped away in a pouch or bag and, in busy or touristy areas, be sure to keep that bag in front of you and close to your body. You'll notice Parisians do this as a matter of course. And like all big cities, there are a fair number of scam artists who are great at spotting tourists, so if someone comes up to you peddling any of the following, signing a random petition, making a friendship bracelet, watching a magic trip with cups, or ordering a taxi outside of the designated taxi bays, say a polite but firm non merci and keep on your way. In recent years, there has been a big push for increased cycling options. Visitors can rent self-service Vélib's bikes, either regular or electric models, to use all across the city. 
In conjunction, many areas of the city, such as the Rue de Rivoli, that runs on the right bank by the Louvre, have gone car-free. You can use Uber, hail a cab, or access the official Paris taxi via the G7 app. But hey, Paris is also a great city to traverse on two feet, depending on where you're headed. If you aren't pressed for time and want to see a bit more of the city, the capital's bus routes are a great way to go. Public buses cover some gorgeous routes across the river and around the city's main arteries. Who are Parisians? What is the point of Paris? Parisians, as I mentioned earlier, have their origins in the Celtic tribe called the Parisi. Think proper Asterix and Obelix vibes. But ever since those first Roman immigrants arrived in the first century BC, the population has been growing and changing non-stop. So, who are Parisians? Well, first we're not provinciaux or provincial. The words Parisians use to designate people from the provinces. Basically, anywhere that is not Paris. And yet, most Parisians are not actually from Paris. The first immigrants to Paris were, and still are, people from the rest of the country, in particular after the development of the railway in the 19th century. Around Gare Montparnasse, in the south of the city, for example, you'll find plenty of restaurants bretons serving savoury buckwheat galettes and sweet crepes typical of the region of Bretagne. You can't go wrong at cosy La Crêperie de Josselin with its generous portions and welcoming ambiance. In some ways, the city is quite separate from the strong regional cultures. Parisians refer to anyone not living there as provincial, and in turn, the provinciales see the Parisians as a breed apart, more elitist and less friendly than their compatriots outside of the capital. Power in France is very centralized, deliberately so. Ancient regime monarchs of the 17th and 18th centuries pushed to centralize power and, quite crucially, to consolidate the French language. They attempted to crush and marginalize the many regional dialects and languages that were widely spoken at the time, from Breton in the west to Occitan in the south. But at the same time, Paris also carries all of the regions of the country in its rich tapestry. Really, it's a microcosm of the rest of France. We could take it one step further and say it's a microcosm for the rest of the world, too. Here, you'll find communities of francophone West Africans in the Goutte d'Or neighborhood. People from Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco in Barbès. European Jews in the Lower Marais near Rue des Rosiers, and Jews from Spain, Portugal, and North Africa in the areas around Butte-Chaumont and Vincennes-Parc. There is a strong Indian, Pakistani, and Sri Lankan community in the La Chapelle area around the back of Gare du Nord. There are Korean and Japanese places to eat all around Rue Saint-Anne near the Louvre and Chinatown in the 13th arrondissement. And there's even a few Americans, notably in the 7th arrondissement near the Eiffel Tower, where you will find the American University, American Church and American Library. From Benjamin Franklin to Gertrude Stein, Thomas Jefferson to James Baldwin, Josephine Baker to Wes Anderson, 
Americans have long been crossing the pond in pursuit of the space to dream and create. A space as unmatched as Paris. Even so, despite its patent multiculturalism, many French people would be reluctant to use this term. Because of ideals generated in the wake of the French Revolution, the general orthodoxy in France centers around integration, a model that stresses the French must be French citizens of the Republic above all else, or at least in the public sphere, and keep their non-French heritage in their private life. It's even illegal for the French government to collect any official statistics on race, ethnicity or religion. This is in part an effort to promote a colorblind society. As an idea, it is quite beautiful, but that's the snag, it's still only theoretical. In reality, French society is far from colorblind. France held colonies in Africa until the 1960s, and its recent struggles with immigration are well documented. Everyday examples of discrimination are legion, but the exact weight of the problem is hard to state, precisely because statistics cannot be collected. C'est compliqué, hein? As a people, the French are generally passionate about politics and philosophy, but they don't trust or even like politicians. The president in France, who is elected every five years, wields a lot of personal power and is the head of the French army. This role has only been filled by men so far and is usually issued from an elite political class who come from the same exclusive graduate schools. There's a huge amount of pomp and ceremony surrounding the president, and there's also a strong tradition of strikes, unions, and street protests. See? Contradictions. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Parisian etiquette. Parisians have a stereotypical reputation for being rude, and it's true that they are not the most effusive or smiley of people, but they can be charming, even warm, and often hilarious. It helps if you have a few tricks up your sleeve, little things you can do to win them over, especially if you don't know much French, because it's true that the French are often put off by tourists who don't at least attempt to speak the language. First, hello. It is customary to say good day or bonjour to whomever is serving or greeting when you enter a space, a store, a bakery, a waiting room, an elevator. If it's the evening, say bonsoir, although the time of day when that begins is never quite clear. 
This will not engage you in a full-on conversation, it's more like a piece of social punctuation. Not saying bonjour will seem as rude as not saying please or thank you. When you leave a space, you just adapt it slightly to au revoir and bonne journée if it's daytime or bonne soirée if it's evening. And if you can ask parlez-vous anglais before you start speaking in English, it will always be appreciated because surprisingly, French people can be self-conscious about their English. Now, when it comes to greeting someone you know, pre-pandemic at least, la bise, or the two kisses on the cheek, has always been the go-to. In a more formal setting, like an introduction, you can shake hands or wave. French people don't tend to hug as a greeting, so don't dive in for a big bear hug, it will feel intrusive. However, all kinds of romantic expression is more permitted, so don't be shocked if you see some pretty full-on public smooching. You'll notice that in most eating places, there is a table service, including the hearty and down-to-earth corner bistros. Here, the relationship between customer and restaurant staff is predicated on mutual respect and an understanding of certain codes. While waiters don't usually feel obliged to be overly nice to customers, you can also receive extraordinary hospitality, including travel tips, a free shot, an excellent recommendation, and so on. In high-end fine dining venues, you can expect incredible service. But in more ordinary corner bistros, the pace of service means the staff won't always be able to personalize the experience. Rather than launching straight into a complex order, ask first if the kitchen is able to accommodate special requests. In any circumstance, being able to read a bit of French body language can go a long way. Frenchies have a truly unique set of facial expressions and expressive gestures that are a key part to how people communicate. You might be familiar with the kind of thing they do like a sad deflating balloon when they are put out or overwhelmed. None is more famous than the Gallic shrug, often accompanied by pursed lips and a roll of the eyes. Crucially, it doesn't mean they are unimpressed by you, well, not specifically, more that they are wary and skeptical of the world as a whole. They don't actually say sacre bleu or zut alors very much, at least not anymore. These are rather old-fashioned sayings that stuck around but have more or less fallen out of vogue. They do, however, true to stereotypes, say oh la la a lot, but it may not mean quite what you think. It doesn't just designate something sexy or risqué, but rather expresses different kinds of surprise, disdain, respect. You can add or remove a la for emphasis. Examples. Hola. One la, you are walking along a busy shopping street and someone walking the opposite way almost bumps into you while they're reading their phone. Hola la, your friend just got a promotion with a fancy new title. Oh la 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 la, you've just pulled an all-nighter at work and you're just very tired. Oh la 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 la, you have just sipped a life-changing glass of wine or something sexy is indeed happening. Because all stereotypes have a grain of truth.
Let them eat brioche, the unbelievable importance of food. In French culture, good food is considered one of life's essentials. Maybe even the most important, it's a close contest with making love. It was a shortage of bread that catalyzed the storming of the Bastille and the start of the French Revolution. And of course, there was Marie Antoinette's famous line, let them eat cake, that has come to represent the excesses of the French monarchy. It was technically brioche, a rich, sweet bread, and she probably didn't actually say it, but you get the point. Food is at the center of some of France's most iconic stories. French people spend a lot of time thinking about food, talking about it, carefully buying it, preparing it, and importantly sharing it with friends and loved ones. Each region has its own terroir, specific features of the geography and land that create different edible delights, local delicacies, and the character of the region's wine. Bouillabaisse from the seafood in Marseille, ratatouille from seasonal vegetables in Nice, La raclette from the Alps, bœuf bourguignon from Burgundy, and oysters from Normandy. And that's just for starters. Charles de Gaulle famously said, how can you govern a country which has 246 varieties of cheese? And indeed, each region has its own conditions, creating different kinds of fromage, meats, and of course, wine. All this gorgeous produce makes its way every morning to Rangis International Market, the largest wholesale food market in the world in the southern suburbs of Paris. It supplies to food retailers as well as the 20,000 or so restaurants in the Paris region. There are beaucoup, beaucoup, beaucoup of amazing restaurants too, from ultra-fine dining to hearty neighborhood bistros, tagine to oyster bars. The choices are basically endless. So let's try and help a bit. First off, Parisians tend to eat three meals a day, usually sitting down, and these can be at home or in a restaurant. Eating is an important ritual and a moment to be cherished, but, or because of this, as a rule, the locals are not big on snacking. Compared to hurried New Yorkers, for example, Parisians are late risers, particularly in the darker winter months. Breakfast will be eating around 8 or 9 a.m. Most cafes offer a formule with a hot drink, pressed orange juice, pastry and tartine, sliced baguette with butter and jam, for under 10 euros. True to stereotype, lunches are long. French employees have a statutory right to an hour for lunch and employers have obligations to either feed them at the work canteen or to provide lunch vouchers or tickets resto. The employee has about four euro per working day taken from their paycheck, and in return, they get more than twice that to spend on food. Here, there is such a thing as a free, or at least heavily subsidized, lunch. Delis and boulangeries offer lunch formule to work with the budget of a single restaurant ticket, while bistros usually also offer a good value lunch deal with two to three courses for 15 to 20 euros. If you want to try a more upscale restaurant and save on spending, going for the lunch deal rather than the evening meal is a great option. 
Paris is somewhere between the habits of northern Europeans and other Latin countries like Italy and Spain when it comes to the timing for dinner. In general, the evening meal is taken around 8 or 9 p.m., though it can be preceded by the apéro, the delightful French ritual of an early evening drink with light snacks. Children have their own version, le goûter, an after-school snack, usually sweet, like a big bowl of hot chocolate with a mini brioche bun. And remember, we'll put all of those recommendations in the notes for you. So check back later when you're looking for where to get a to-die-for steak frites. And it will be at the Bistro Paul Bear, by the way. Eating out in Paris is definitely a must. Whether you opt for high-end Michelin dining or hearty corner bistro, it's one of the best ways to experience real French culture. It's also a lot of fun to do some grocery shopping in Paris too. If you have a kitchen, you can even try your hand at some French cooking. Everyone in Paris, from the chefs to the French grandmas, shop at the food markets. There are over 80 of them held across the city, open air and covered. In other words, you can find a good one any day of the week somewhere in Paris. Expect a dazzling selection of fresh fruit and veg and artisanal products with a side of local charm. Parisian food markets can feel a little bit intimidating, especially as the vendors like to shout loudly about the day's best produce and deals. But don't worry, these people do this week in, week out. They are usually super charming and have at least enough English to point out products and tell you how much they cost. In general, you ask the vendor to select your fruits, spices, olives, flowers, rather than selecting for yourself. They will pick you out the best ones. The Marché d'Aligre, held six days a week east of Bastille in the 12th arrondissement, is a must for food lovers. You'll find gorgeous seasonal fruit and veg, cheese from just about every region in France, fresh fish, cured meat and spices from North Africa, but also sections of flea markets selling a mix of weird and wonderful antiques and charming vintage kitchenware. And beyond the market, there are tons of small, independent food shops in just about every neighborhood. Start your day by hitting the boulanger or baker to pick up a tradi or baguette tradition. Try the best of the bunch at Maison Landemaine or Mamiche, or make your own discoveries. I dare you to make it home before you finish that entire baguette. As it's Paris, there is no shortage of advice I can give you about how to shop and eat, but there are definitely a few tips you ought to keep in mind. Number one, food is revered and in general should be enjoyed sitting down and in good company, hence the very true stereotype of the long French lunch break. Number two, avoid eating on the street or in public transportation, except for the croûte, which is the crust, of your hot baguette as you walk home with it. This is allowed. Number three, it is not chic to say bon appétit at a dinner party. It's considered a rather earthy term that evokes the digestion process. However, if you do eat on the street, 
people might tell you, bun up, with a little bit of sarcasm. Number four, when you clink glasses, say santé or your health, and you must look your co-drinkers in the eye when you trink. Otherwise, you will be cursed to seven years of bad sex and nobody wants that. As you can imagine, a dreadful proposition for the French. With those four rules, we've only scraped the surface, but they'll keep you out of etiquette jail. For more about the glorious food of Paris, you'll want to listen to our Eat Here episode in this guide for the full degustation. Art de vivre. So you've had a wonderful day feasting on French delicacies. It's only right that you should let your hair down. As we have already explored, Paris nightlife starts and centers around food and drink. Dinner starting around 8 or 9 p.m. or an apéro on a terrace. As a rule, the best Parisian nights out are not planned. Instead, you can pick a lively area and see where the evening takes you. We recommend South Pigalle, or Sopi, the red-like district, turned cool party district in the shadow of the Moulin Rouge. Start the festivities with a civilized cocktail at Le Grand Pigalle Hotel before cramming into Lulu White's for a tiki-themed tipple. Maybe make a friend or two before finishing the night dancing like it's 1899 at La Machine du Moulin Rouge, one of the city's coolest dance floors located inside the historic windmill. Or head east to Ménilmontant. Start the evening with piles of dumplings, or ravioli as they're called here, at Guachin in the Belleville neighborhood, the right bank's mini Chinatown. Then hit the smoky dive bar terrace of Les Triplettes de Belleville, a favorite haunt of local waves and strays and arty types. Hit the dance floor later at La Bellevilloise, a cultural hub hosting regular DJs and live bands. Done right, Paris by night is a spontaneous adventure that can end in a private party in a mansion house or in a glaringly bright kebab joint devouring a delightfully greasy pile of fries with samurai sauce. For those who do prefer to plan, you could always organize your trip around the ever-busy Paris events calendar. There's not really any such thing as low season in Paris. Nearly any time of the year, you can find something exciting happening, a festival or a concert series or a premier sporting event. These are some of my favorites. January, February and September are celebs spotting heaven as the Beau Monde descend on the city for Paris Fashion Week. Paris is often considered the fashion capital of the world, after all, and Parisians take it quite seriously. So much so, there's an entire episode about Paris style in this guide. You might also be visiting during any one of the city's major sporting events, from the Six Nations Rugby Tournament in February to the French Open at Roland Garros in May and June. If you want to see the bigger matches, 
Keep an eye on the website or app and opt to be notified when tickets go on sale in early March. And then there are the regular fixtures of Paris Saint-Germain. In a football-loving nation that has twice won the World Cup, the Capitals club team is a big deal. Since it was bought by Qatar Sports Investment, it has been buying up world-class players like croissants. You can't go wrong sporting PSG gear in Paris, and you can pick it up at any number of places, including the team's flagship store on the Champs-Élysées or the concession inside Galerie Lafayette. In May, there's museum night, where the museums are free to enter and stay open till late or early. Come summer solstice in June, it's Fête de la Musique, a giant music-themed street party with live bands literally on every street corner. For music lovers, there's the Paris Jazz Festival all summer long in the Parc Floral in the Vincennes Woods. In June, there are street parties all over the city as Paris celebrates pride. Head to Rue Sainte-Croix de la Bretonnerie in the Marais to be right in the heart of the city's gay village. In October, Parisians stay up all night again for Nuit Blanche, which sees the city become a nocturnal open-air gallery. Paris en famille. For many French children, and quite a few adults too, Paris's most exciting attraction is one thing, and one thing only, Disneyland. The two-park resort, located 20 miles to the east of central Paris, formerly known as Euro Disney, is the most visited, ticketed tourist attraction in France, attracting around 10 million visitors per year. You can take the not-so-pretty but practical RER suburban train all the way there on Line A. Get off at Marne-la-Vallée-Chessy and you are a two-minute walk from the park gate. We suggest going when the park opens at 9.30 a.m. to really make the most of it. It is undeniably a feast for the senses, but with the exception of Chez Rémy, the restaurant name after the rat in Ratatouille, there is very little about it that's truly Parisian. However, the parade and fireworks show are done with characteristic French flair. A growing number of innovative Parisian companies offer family-friendly activities to help kids enjoy some of the city's most traditional locations. Think treasure hunts in the Louvre or escape games in the Opéra of the Palais Garnier. We'll share all the details in the show notes. Riding the lifts to the top of the Eiffel Tower will cost around 27 euros for adults and 7 euros for kids. The view is an experience everyone will enjoy. The entire city of Paris stretching out in all directions. On the way up, stop on the first floor for an interactive exhibit about the history of the tower and also to stand on the toe-curling glass floor 200 feet or so above ground level. 
You'll find no shortage of elegant parks here, great for families of all kinds, including Parc Monceau and Butte-Chaumont, but perhaps none more so than the Luxembourg Gardens. Discover this quintessentially charming park on the border of the Latin Quarter and Saint-Germain, which was dedicated to children by Napoleon Bonaparte. The garden sits next to the spectacular Luxembourg Palace, built by Marie de Médicis in the 1600s and which is now the home of the French Senate. Some of the quaint activities enjoyed in the gardens by the local kids would not look out of place 200 years ago. Sailing wooden boats on the lake, watching marionette shows and pony riding. There are also tennis courts, beehives, and some more 21st century type play equipment. It's possible to visit the palace, but hours are quite limited, so check in advance. We'll put a link in the notes for you. For the tiny ones, take inspiration from the locals and head to Le Square, the little local parks that dot the city, and go on Le Manège or merry-go-round. This is kind of a kiddie institution for Parisians under five. Nothing will ingratiate you more with a French child than a fistful of manège tokens. Legendary French singer Edith Piaf even sang about it. French culture is very family-centric, and children come everywhere. But they're also expected to behave like mini-adults, meaning well-behaved. That means there's none of our Anglo-Saxon letting them run amok. American-French journalist Pamela Druckerman wrote about this difference in her bestseller, French Children Don't Throw Food. One of the big distinctions is that French parents are not so keen on kid-oriented venues. So ahead of your trip, you could play with doing things the French way and bringing the whole family with you to grown-up restaurants to get your kids used to it. But don't worry, if they do throw a tantrum, the Parisians might forgive you. The most beautiful city in the world. The French may be more concerned than most with beauty, and sometimes that can come across as stuck-up, but it's really down to the immense pride the French take in their capital city. Parisians are simply not willing to settle when it comes to matters of taste. Most of the city that we see today dates from the 1860s and 70s, and the renovation of the city by Baron Haussmann, who was employed by Napoleon III to remodel Paris, making it more sanitary, more uniform, and, crucially, more ordered. Haussmann built wide avenues and boulevards, like the one that takes his name, Baron Haussmann, the address of department stores Galerie Lafayette and Printemps. The idea was also to prevent the pesky Parisians barricading the narrow roads which happened in the 1830 revolution. He built apartment blocks in the style that also takes his name and is characterized by facades in pale Paris limestone with six floors and iron balconies but only on the second and fifth floors. 
The apartments in the roof were the chambre de bonne, or maids' rooms, and living in these tiny one-room garrets is a rite of passage for new arrivals in the city. More than 50% of the city's buildings are in this style, and their uniform elegance is what gives Paris its unique and instantly recognizable look. But the redesign was also a kind of mass gentrification. A huge amount of the former medieval city was demolished during the renovation, earning Osman a nickname, the Destroyer. Some vestiges of the medieval pre-Osmanian town remain, with the narrow alleys of Saint-Michel and some tall, narrow 16th-century houses in the Marais. The Marais itself was a noble area that fell out of favor after the revolution, became a ghetto before gentrifying after it was designated protected in the 60s, and later once again becoming the place to be, thanks to investment from the LGBTQ community. All this to say that Paris, the city shaped in a spiral, seems to always be changing and yet never really changing at all, going around in circles that repeat a cycle of rebellion and order, bloodshed and beauty. It's both every hope for cliché and a million unique experiences that you didn't see coming. As long as you spend a moment to appreciate the city as the French do, you'll be doing Paris exactly right. Thanks for listening to our Paris Start Here episode. Now that we've enticed you into this elegant cosmopolitan metropolis, remember to check out the other Paris episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the city's art history the fascinating love story between Paris and jazz pioneers, and a very French take on food and drink. Whether you're heading to Paris right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app where you can also get pictures, maps, and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, Iceland, New York, LA, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.